Hi, and welcome to Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We are committed to serving our community and the community abroad. We pray that the word you are about to hear will be a blessing to your life and that you allow the Holy Spirit to open your heart and receive what the Lord is speaking to you. Hope you all are doing good. What a powerful time of worship. Lord, we pray that you give us your wisdom and understanding now as we unpack the word of God. We thank you, God, that you have called us for such a time as this to come into your kingdom. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're doing a series through 2 Corinthians, and we're going to try to wrap it up today. I don't know if we can, but we're going to go through chapter 12, and if we have the time, we'll go through chapter 13. And so Paul is defending himself and his apostleship, and you have to look at uh, chapter 11, verse 30, to frame it. He says, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my weaknesses. And then in chapter 12, Carrying along this thought, he said, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, but I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows how he was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible words which it, it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my weaknesses. For though I might, might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But if I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees from me or hears from me. And so, as we have been talking about, Paul has been defending his call as an apostle. There were false apostles that came in. They were trying to undermine him, even though he founded the church. They were uh, doing their best to stop him from having any influence in that particular church. And so we found in chapter 11 that he was talking about how, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. So evidently they were Jewish uh, so-called apostles or leaders that were saying that they had more authority than Paul for some reason or another. And as we'll find out, one of the reasons is because he didn't collect any money from them, so he, they turned it around and said, well, he thinks you guys are inferior. You can't even support him. Um, but he was doing that to give money to, another, uh, to other congregations, as we saw in chapter 8 and 9. And so he's saying in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 23, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, and labor is more abundant. It stripes above measure. So we already went through this, so he's defending himself. Then in chapter 12, he goes on to say how he could brag, but he will not brag about the earthly Paul. He will brag about the spirit man Paul. Now, for those of you who don't understand what I just said, 
The Bible makes it clear that we are tripod beings, spirit, soul, and body. And the soul and the spirit live on for eternity, always conscious. Whether we're with Christ forever or not, there will always be a conscious person that the body will not control anymore. So the real you is a spirit. And it's interesting in philosophy, as I was studying some of that, the philosophical conundrum they have is, are the laws of logic or rationality material or immaterial? And that's a trick question because nobody can figure it out because if your thoughts are material, then if you think of an elephant, how can an elephant be material if an elephant's not in your brain? That is to say, thoughts are one of the great proofs of the fact that we have a spirit and a soul because thoughts and rationality are immaterial. Conscience is immaterial. So why do you feel guilty about something that your flesh desires? Even sometimes your mind craves for it, and you feel guilty, right? Well, because that's not your soul. That's your spirit. That's the innermost part of your being, the most holy place, if you will, that is connected with the spirit world and, as a Christian, connected with God. And so we have different understandings of reality even within ourself. In Romans 7, Paul talks about how the inner man delights in the law of God, but in his flesh, he doesn't want to obey it. And there's a fight, you know. And as a new Christian, if you're feeling condemned or convicted because you have a war inside, you know, you're always feeling guilty because you give in to something, well, that's proof you are a Christian because before you were a Christian, you wouldn't care if you were doing what you're doing. So one of the proofs that you are a child of God is that you feel bad when you do something wrong. And, I mean, and even, more, even people who don't know Christ feel bad when they do something wrong. But it is really accentuated. When you become a Christian, it gets more and more acute. That's one of the proofs the Holy Spirit is in you, when you're grieving the Holy Spirit. It's not a nice experience, but it's actually a sign that God loves you because whom the Lord loves, he disciplines tells us in Hebrews 12, verse 5 to 11. So Paul here is talking about bragging about a, the spiritual part of him, which was caught up to heaven. And he said, I don't even know if I was in my body or not. So it's possible he was translated bodily into heaven. But the spirit world is so much more powerful, acute, and uh, uh, more tangible than the physical, if you could believe it, that he wasn't even aware of his physical body when he was brought into paradise. He was taken into the third heaven. The third heaven implies there are two other heavens. So we know that this general atmosphere would be heaven. Then the stars of the sky, the cosmos, would be the second heaven. The third heaven would be way beyond the material universe, most likely in a spiritual dimension uh, that a person cannot see unless they enter into that fourth dimension. So there are three heavens. When you read some of the apocalyptic literature of some of the Jewish writers uh, who wrote around or right before the time of Christ, some of them, like First Enoch, Second Enoch, they, they taught there was like seven heavens. So it's possible there are multidimensional places that we're not aware of, but the Bible only tells us enough for our salvation, for our knowledge of Christ to walk out our faith here. 
If the Bible tried to tell us everything about the afterlife, it would, be, it would fill up all the encyclopedias of the world and nobody would get anywhere. So we only have enough. We have minimal knowledge to succeed in life and to follow Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul heard things that he wasn't able to write or repeat. So when you get into that realm, paradise, um, you, you're going to know things even as you're truly known. You're not going to look at knowledge fragmentated. You're going to know it comprehensively. Here we look in a glass darkly, but there face to face. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 and 13. So he wasn't even able to repeat certain things, whether it meant that it would be over our head or because it wouldn't help us. We don't know. But he was caught up into this paradise. He said, that's the kind of person I'm going to brag about because that's when God lifts me out of my human weaknesses. That's when I'm no longer dealing with pride, jealousy, physical infirmity. I'm, I'm face to face. I'm now in a complete form reflecting the image of Christ. That's the kind of person I'm going to brag about. So he's talking rhetorically. He's trying to get two points across. One, nobody should brag while they're on the earth. Number two, there is an eternity coming that a lot of these so-called super apostles, how they're acting and everything, they're missing the whole point of what God has that is so great that their knowledge doesn't compare to what even Paul learned in those brief moments in eternity. So what Paul was basically saying is, these guys think they know so much, I can't even tell you everything I know. That's the person I'll brag about, the person caught up into the third heaven. Now, I've never been physically translated into heaven, but I've had incredible experience of, uh, experiences, often of ecstasy, ecstatic experiences, where I was caught up in the spirit, uh, where I feel like, um, you know, the realm between heaven and earth was very dim, very thin. Oftentimes when I'm praying, it's like that. I'm more aware of the spiritual world. And when I'm just living my life, I'm more aware, and to be quite honestly, of the spiritual world because I'm walking in the spirit. So that's more acute and more powerful, more potent than the physical world. The more you grow spiritually, the less the flesh will have a grip on you. You don't have the same temptations. You don't sin all the time. When you sin, it's very, very rare. It's actually a rare occasion. You learn how to live by the Spirit. You won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. It tells us in Galatians chapter 5. So now let's go to verse 7. And he said, Lest I should be exalted in my earthly being above measure because of these incredible revelations I got in paradise, God allowed a thorn in the flesh to be given to him. What is the thorn in the flesh? It's not physical sickness like some people say who don't understand the word of God. He explains what it is. A messenger of Satan. What does that messenger of Satan do? Buffets me. Buffet means attack. Everywhere Paul went, there was a riot. There was a shipwreck. There were robbers. He got stoned to death twice. He got beaten up. There were false brothers. There were uh, always things. If you read the book of Acts, it's like, man, this guy, I don't even know how he lived to be 64. I think that was how old he was when he was executed. Uh, he should have died a lot sooner with all the things he went through. So everywhere he went, Satan followed him. It wasn't sickness, although anyone who gets beat up, gets beaten with rods, 
gets stoned, is going to have physical problems, right? So it wasn't because God wanted him to be physically sick, but all the challenges he had, all the risks he took, all of the um, ways he was always in a, in a weak place made him utterly depend upon God. And that's where we're safe. Believe it or not, you want to live a life so that you don't have to believe God. And that's what many of us, are, we're exerting our faith that we have enough money or we have enough this, we have enough that. It's almost like we're wishing for a life where we won't need God. <laughs> but God, it's not that he wants us to be broke or poor, but God will always put us, if we're really following him, he's going to assign us things to do that will be beyond our abilities. The things that I have been doing for 42 years, there's no way I could have pulled off. And I'm not here to give my testimony. And if I'm not in the spirit, and if I'm not in the word, if I'm not in faith, sometimes I could get anxiety. Because, my God, what did I get myself into? How am I going to get out of this mess? You know, believing God financially for this, starting this church without a pastor, not this church, that now. I mean, so many different things we did out of the call of God. Uh, if God called you to do something easy, it's not God. I'm just telling you. So in that state, sometimes there's an instability. Uh, some people call it liminality. Liminality would be like Never Never Land, in between your dream and waking up, right? You're not in the place you were, but you're not where you're going. You don't know exactly where you're going, but you're not where you are. That's all you know. That's liminality. The church has thrived in that place. You look at the book of Acts, no matter how much they were persecuted, they blew up, they multiplied, they grew. When the church got so stable, they got lazy, and they became institutionalized by the third century. And a lot of the apostolic impetus and the fire left, except for people like St. Patrick and Augustine, a few others. They're always great lights, no matter what was going on. But the point is, um, when people have a lot of options financially, when they have everything they need, a lot of times they are not hungry for God. It's not God's fault, it's their fault. The ones that God really um, cherishes, I think, a lot in terms of is proud of are those who have a lot but still are hungry and thirsty. It's not a sin to have a lot of money, but it's a sin to put money before God, right? So when you have a lot and you're still going after God, wow, that shows that you really have a heart after God. But Paul got so many incredible revelations, not just the illumination of the word, this is where we're at. He got revelation where Jesus told him things. And he had to get to a place where God allowed hard times everywhere he went. So the higher your calling in Christ, the more spiritual warfare you're going to have. If you don't have any spiritual warfare, it means that either you're not a threat to the enemy or you're not doing much for God. There is going to be spiritual warfare. There's going to be resistance in your life. And if it's not because of your own foolishness, other people will cause you uh, resistance or hurt what you're trying to do and it's life if you don't want a life of pain and pressure then ask God to take you now 
Because right now, in this life, there is going to be pain. There's going to be pressure. But what Paul said, I'm bragging about my pain. He got to a place of faith in Christ that he knew the harder it got, the more God was going to come through. The more power is going to manifest. The more joy he could have. The more he could see God do miracles. The greater his testimony. The greater the mess, the greater the message. The more authority you will have. And so the more you get in God, the more you don't, you know, it's not like it's not hard, but you just get to a point where, Lord, (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to get out of this, but I can't wait to see what you do. All things work together for good for those who love God, for the called according to his purpose. It's amazing. So we're in a world that's filled with tribulation, right? Because of human complexity, nature, because of resources, scarcity of things. But... In God, there's no lack. And the more we live in that realm, mentally and spiritually, the more we'll be able to survive and thrive in the midst of challenges. How many understand what Paul is saying here? And so God allowed something, the messenger of Satan, to buffet him, a thorn in the flesh. We see that in Judges. We see that in Joshua. We see that in, uh, what is it, Exodus. They were called thorns in the side of Israel when God allowed their enemies to attack them. So that's another reason why we know it had nothing to do with physical sickness, had to do with outside persecution and pressure, because the thorn in the side was used three different times in the Old Testament. Paul, as a Jew, was using Old Testament language and uh, metaphor. And so when he said, there was a thorn given me in the flesh, you've got to go back to the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 3, where God says that, if you don't get rid of these enemies, they're going to be thorns in your side. And he said similar things other places. So a thorn in the side had to do with outside pressure. Uh, people who take the Bible every place and don't understand how to interpret it. They take every little word literally. Thorn in the flesh, flesh. Well, that means he was sick. That has nothing to do with it. Thorn in the flesh was explained in the Old Testament. It meant outside persecution. These are euphemisms, these are metaphors, these are sayings uh, that God has made clear to us, both in the Old and New Testament. You need the Old to interpret the New, the New to understand fully the Old. So he said that he pleaded with God, and I've been there, done that, and I'm doing that a lot sometimes. He pleaded with God three times that he might take away this thorn, take away all of these outside pressures, God, I want to be in a world without this sort of stuff. God's answer was profound. He said, my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul got to a place when he really understood this. The light bulb went off. And that's why he began to rejoice in his challenges. Began to brag about them. If you have someone who's always bragging about their victories and never honest about their weaknesses, then that's somebody you want to not fully trust, put it that way. Um, And so he says, therefore, most gladly, I will brag about my infirmities or weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I take pleasure in in infirmities or weaknesses. In reproaches, that's people talking about him. In necessities, in persecution, in distress. That means you don't know what to do. You don't have all the answers. 
for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Wow. If we could just get into that, especially during the past two years with all the crises and COVID and global unrest, the church really has to understand this. And anybody who preaches a gospel of ultimate victory in this world, where you don't have any challenges or pain or problems, don't listen to them. They're, they're, they don't know the word or they're false prophets. Because this is the word, what Paul is saying. There are some parts of the Bible people don't want to preach or people don't want to read. We don't do that. We're trying to give you the whole counsel of God here. And then he says in verse 13, I become a fool in boasting. But you made me, you compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. You should have been proud of me. I'm the one who founded the church, right? In nothing I was behind these so-called eminent apostles, although I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance, with signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself were not burdensome to you. Forgive me this wrong. So they were saying that Paul thought, you guys, you Corinthians, you're inferior in Paul's mind because he doesn't extract any money from you. He doesn't take it for himself. And what he did was he was using it to help other churches that he founded. But they were lying, they were twisting it. They were saying, you see, he doesn't think you have enough faith to give him anything. He, he, he's treating you like a a lower class church. So they were twisting the truth and perverting it to undermine Paul, taking anything they can. So Paul rhetorically was saying, you've compelled me to boast. Now, verse 14, he says, for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. The first time we see in uh, Acts chapter 18, when he founded the church of Corinth. The second time, I'm not aware of the date, and uh, the first time he founded the church, the second time he came to help establish it, the third time he's saying, I'm coming to correct. I'm coming to deal with some serious issues here. And he said, I don't want to be burdensome. I don't seek yours, but you. I'm here to love you for you. Children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And then he said in verse 15, but I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. You could see him being hurt instead of being commended. I mean, being a pastor is hard. You know how many pastors have quit in the last two years? And about 72% of them are looking for other jobs. It's been crazy hard the last two years. But uh, there's so much I could say, which I'm going to try not to get off track. I want to get through this. Um, And so here he is, Paul, the great apostle, wrote half of the New Testament. He is devastated. And he's saying, but I'm going, in spite of this, in spite of how you treat me, in spite of how you're listening to these other so-called apostles, in spite of how you're living in, in disobedience, in spite of how you talk about me, I will gladly spend for you, meaning I'll give what I have, and I'm going to give it to you. But he took it a step further. Not only will I gladly spend, but I will be spent. 
I'm not just giving you of my time, I'm giving you my life. I'm not just giving you a tithe, I'm giving you 100%. And Paul is saying this to the church. That is language we usually leave for God. I'll give everything. You're mine, God. Everything of mine is yours. But this shows you how important the body of Christ is. Paul says, I will be spent for the church. Too many people allow every little thing to get in the way of serving God, serving in the church, of loving God's church. They treat the church like it's a supermarket. I'll go whoever has the best preacher or where the best sales are that day, right? But Paul is saying, I'm going to be spent. Not just spend, but spent. I'm all in. Some of you only in with your ankles in the water. Some up to your knees. Paul dove in. He's all in. You got to be all in for the church, not just for Jesus. Because if you're not all in for the church, you're not really all in for Jesus. Because the church is the visible manifestation of the invisible Christ. The church is his body. Jesus is the head. We are the neck down. If you love God, you'll love his church. Powerful. He said, I'll be spent. For the church. Incredible. So much we could say. When John the Apostle turned around to hear the voice that was speaking to him. In Revelation chapter 1. When he turned around the first thing he saw was the church. And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks which were symbols of the church. Then he saw the son of man. You can't see Jesus unless you first see the church. Revelation 1 verse 15 to 17. He saw the church before he saw the Son of Man who walks in the midst of the church. Whew. I love God's church with all its problems and issues and now another scandal being you know, on, on television. There's so many narratives being twisted, some truth, some not true. Look, man, all I know is if Jesus died for his bride, that's good enough for me. I love the church. Jesus is not coming back for a Christianized America. He's coming back for his bride. Then he says, be that as it may, I didn't burden you. Did I take advantage of you by any of those I sent you? I urged Titus and our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? In other words, all of his associates acted just like him. Verse 19, again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ. We do all things, beloved, to build you up for your edification. But I fear, lest I come, remember he said he's coming again to that church, I will not find you as I wish, and you won't find me as you wish. I fear that when I come the third time, there will be contentions, Jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfishness, backbiting, whispering. What kind of church service is that going to be? Ooh, what kind of revival? Imagine. So people think that there are problems now in the church that we never saw before. This is 2,000 years ago. 
He knew when he was going to come, there would be backbiting, contention, jealousy, because all the stuff these false apostles riled up against him. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me. And I will mourn for many who have sinned and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. Now we know of one person who is having sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman. That's the Bible's definition for marriage. And we find that in 1 Corinthians 5 that they had to put a guy out of the church because he was sleeping with his father's wife. We don't know if it was his mother, probably his stepmother. But here, it seems to indicate there were more than one engaged in fornication, which is any sex outside of one man, one woman, marriage. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good. And he said, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned and not, so he used the word many, have not repented of uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness. It's interesting. They are still considered in the church, even though they're acting like this. It brings us to chapter 13 now. He says, this will be the third time I'm coming to you. So he says it twice. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. What is he saying? We're going to have an adjudication process when I come. I'm not just meeting to have a hallelujah meeting. Anybody who hasn't repented, we're going to have a session. You could call it a tribunal. You could call call it a church court. But we're going to deal with the issues together. And in those days, uh, different sects of society or factions of society were allowed to have their own judicial gatherings. So he was calling for that within the church. And he said, I've told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time and now being absent, that those who have sinned before and all the rest, that when I come, I will not spare. So he was going to call them all together in some kind of judicial process, and he was going to deal with sin. Now, when you have people who are struggling and they get up and they repent, it's fine, you know. But these are people that were intentionally living a life of disobedience and calling themselves brothers and sisters and perhaps even leaders, we don't know, um, and dealing and, and undermining Paul and, and following super apostles who probably let them do whatever they wanted in the flesh. I mean, it's easy you know, you tell people you can live any way you want. You'll, you want to fill the building up, right? It's hard to be countercultural and say that any sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman is fornication. A lot of people be afraid to say that. But if they say that's illegal, then they're making the Bible illegal. Sign me up. I'll have a prison ministry. So he's saying, I'm dealing with this because Christ died for a church to be sanctified, to walk with him, to live for him. And he said, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me who is not weak towards you but mighty in you, 
For though he was crucified in weakness, he lives by the power of God, so we awaken him, but we will live by the power of God towards you. Meaning he was saying, when I come and we have this process, God's power is going to be manifest. I mean, <laughs> you want to get an example of that, look at Acts chapter, what is it, 13, when Elamis, the sorcerer, was resisting Paul and trying to stop him from preaching the gospel. And Paul said, boom, and he was blind. He couldn't see, and the person that he was trying to stop from hearing the gospel got saved. And he said, man, this is... And Paul's saying, if you want, I'll come with that kind of exhibition of power. Paul wasn't playing games. So what does this teach us? First of all, it teaches us that we could have imperfect people in the church. doesn't mean they're not Christians. But it also teaches us that we need to allow leaders to hold us accountable. Right? And if it ever came down to it, where there was a faction of who was really the leader, then you have a judicial process within the church. These are all, it's right here. Okay? Uh, thank God we've never had to deal with any of that in 38 years. And we have a strong leadership team, elders, pastors, and all of that. We're, we have a strong, stable place. Um, and we've never had situations as bad as this that I know of, at least in my memory. Um, but every church has big problems or challenges or issues but, you know, thank God we're still Christians and we're still in the church, even if we're messing up. This, that's what this is showing. All he was saying to them is just please submit to spiritual authority. Get your act together. Come to Jesus. Let him clean you up. Let him get you right. He wasn't saying you got to be perfect. He was saying let the true shepherds that God has ordained for you help you. Do you see what he's saying there? Don't follow these false leaders who are giving you permission to do anything you want so that they could undermine my leadership. No, let the true shepherds that God has entrusted you help you. He didn't say these immoral people were not true Christians or not in the church. He was saying, basically, if they weren't in the church, he wouldn't be writing to them, right? He's saying, align with God and let the spiritual leaders Hold you accountable and help you. Does this make sense? But he did say in verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you're really in the faith. Some of them was so on the edge. He said, test yourselves. He said, do you know that Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Meaning, you're not a true Christian just because you come into a building. That would be like saying you're a horse because you go into a horse's barn. You're not a Christian just because your parents are Christian. You're not a Christian just because you live in the Bible Belt. You're not a Lutheran just because you're born in Germany, a true Lutheran. That's cultural Christianity. The only true Christian is one as Jesus Christ in their life. So Paul was starting to doubt someone who were really saved, even though they were in the midst of the church because of the way they were acting. So he was giving them a chance to repent and giving them a chance to see if they were really 
who they said they were. So actually the Bible says test yourselves. If you're online or if you're here in person right now, is Jesus in you? Doesn't matter if you clap and dance every Sunday. Is Jesus in you? If he's not in you, then you're not really a Christian. Christianity is the only quote-unquote religion in the world where you cannot claim to be a Christian if you haven't had a supernatural encounter with God. That's what separates us from Islam, from Buddhism, from philosophy, from Confucianism and Zen Buddhism. and every, I mean, it's not a ritual. It's not a practice. It's not, although Buddhism is not a religion, but the point is Christianity is only, if you read the Bible, not if you hear certain denominations, they say, well, you could be baptized as a baby, you're a Christian. Show me that in the Bible. Um, Just coming to church, you're a Christian. My parents are Christian. No, 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 no. Nope. Christianity is the only faith. Whereas Jesus is not in you. If you haven't been born from above, you are not really saved. Wow. He says, I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. He wraps up this letter and he says, now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved. Not because I want to look like I'm right in what I'm saying but that you would live honorably. You would do what's honorable, even though we seem to be disqualified. He's being rhetorical, being sarcastic. Even if you believe what these other people are saying about me, I still pray that you do what's honorable and follow God, even if in your mind I'm disqualified. Whoa, what a shepherd. Even if you don't want to follow in my leadership, I pray that you follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. I love this man. And then verse 8, he says, because we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. He's so compelled, and leaders that are so possessed of Christ cannot do anything against the truth or against the church, even if they wanted to. It's just they're so possessed. It's a supernatural grace, a supernatural love, a supernatural compelling, a supernatural longing, a supernatural fire, a supernatural essence inside of us where we couldn't do something that would go against the mandate of Christ to preach the gospel. No matter how hard it's gotten, how many times we think we want to quit when we've been possessed of Christ. And it's not just a job, it's not just doing a profession, but it's a calling, it's a ministry. No matter how many times you're beaten down, you get back up and you continue on. No matter how hard it is, you just go to the cross in your flesh and you just bite, bite the bullet and continue on. We can do nothing against the truth. We pray that you may be complete or mature. I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Meaning, he was trying to correct them with this letter so that when he showed up, everything would be good. 
Everything be cool. Finally, brethren, become mature, become complete. Be of good comfort, be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss and all the saints will greet you back. And now he quotes something that was probably a formula, a song, part of a poem, but something the church used as a benediction. They blessed the church when they ended a service and they said, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion, the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. What a beautiful benediction. Why don't we stand? Now, I am preaching in Staten Island, and the service starts now, which means I've got to leave. So I'm going to ask Pastor Victor to pray for you whatever the Holy Ghost lays on his heart. But I love you. All shepherds could identify with the longing, with the pain, and the processes that Paul went through. Maybe not to the same extent, but to a certain extent we could all identify. Blessings. Amen. We pray that you were blessed by this word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at resurrectionchurchofny.com or give us a call at 718-436-0242 and be sure to follow us on Instagram at reschurchnyc. Take care and God bless.